traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Jamie Dimon has run J.P. Morgan for almost 18 years, earning himself a reputation as one of the most respected CEOs on Wall Street and in America. But there has been speculation that his sights are set on even higher office. Would you vote for Jamie Dimon for president? A big name wants him to run. His annual shareholder letter, required reading on Wall Street, often reads more like a political manifesto than a memo to investors. This is part of the quote from the letter. America remains divided within its own borders and its global leadership role is being challenged outside of its borders. He possesses plenty of skills that might be useful in the job. He has efficiently managed a vast organization with more than a quarter of a million employees. Remember, J.P. Morgan has a workforce of about 300,000. He is adept in a crisis. Having dodged the risks that felled other banks during the global financial crisis or the mini-crisis of 2023, his practice of maintaining a fortress balance sheet meant he could acquire other failed banks, both in 2008 and this year. First Republic getting billions from the nation's blue-chip banks to shore up its balance sheet. This on the 15th anniversary of J.P. Morgan's fire sale purchase of Bear Stearns. All this has resulted in soaring valuations for J.P. Morgan. Under his tenure, shareholders have earned average annual returns of 10.6%, double that of most other large banks. But in some ways, his success is also a challenge. Jamie Dimon is a man who likes to keep busy, building up a business and solving its problems. There is not much left to fix at J.P. Morgan. This week, Wall Street's most celebrated boss talks to The Economist about recession, China, and what he might do next. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Leeds, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show... An interview with a man who has spent close to two decades running what is now America's most successful bank. First, does he believe that the 2023 banking crisis is over? For the most part. I call it a mini-crisis. Then, what does he think about the state of American politics? I would worry about another Trump presidency. And finally, what is next for Jamie Dimon? I'd be fine if I don't have this job. You know, I love it. Mike, Tom, hello. Hey, Alice. Hi, Alice. Mike, you're back. Where were you? Um, I was in Turkey. I was in Istanbul and Cappadocia, which, though sort of in Asia, is not part of my coverage remit. I was just on holiday. And now you're somewhere almost equally as exotic. You're back in Leeds. Yes, yes. My hometown, the Istanbul of Western Europe, as people call it. Um, you have had a bit of an interesting time as well, Alice. You've had the boss in town. How was that? Uh, Yes, this is why I made the trip up to New York last week. After we finished taping Money Talks, I went to go grab breakfast with our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddows, before we both headed over to J.P. Morgan's offices on Madison Avenue, where Zanny was set to sit down with Jamie Dimon. 
Now, obviously, Jamie Dimon is this kind of towering figure in finance. He's probably one of the few people on Wall Street whose name is familiar beyond just finance nerds. Yes, and that's partly because he's just been around for such a long time. He's been running JP Morgan for 18 years. He's the only major CEO on Wall Street who was in his seat before the financial crisis kicked off. And so what exactly did Zani want to talk to him about? A lot of different things. In many ways, he's kind of an unusual bank CEO. His interests and the topics he wants to talk about often stretch far beyond banking or other things that seem straightforwardly related to the running of America's biggest bank. So not just things like the banking crisis or where interest rates are headed and how the economy is doing. He writes these long annual shareholder letters about things like public policy or climate change. And so obviously she did talk to him about banks and the economy, but she also wanted to get his views on Bidenomics and industrial policy, what he thinks of the rise of China, and ask him about his plans if he ever stops running JP Morgan. And Jamie Dimon has this reputation for being both clever and charming, but also occasionally a bit brash. Is that what you found? Yeah, he is a no-nonsense, pragmatic kind of guy. You know, he's much less interested in talking about whether he's a Republican or a Democrat, and much more interested in talking about what policies might work to achieve goals he professes to care about, like social mobility or how to interact with China. He definitely does get kind of worked up about certain topics, like how he believes in free markets or thinks the concept of stakeholder capitalism is a method for humanizing business. And he can get pretty forceful about the things that he cares about. But it's often in a way that makes him sort of seem authentic and candid rather than aggressive. I'd argue that it's kind of part of his charm. But with all that said, shall we hear the first half of Zanny's conversation with him? Yes, let's do it. Jamie Dimon, thanks so much for joining The Economist. You have now run J.P. Morgan Chase, America's most successful biggest bank for, what, 18 years? You played a big role in 2008 in the global financial crisis. You've played a big role this year. So let's start with the banking system. Is the, the financial crisis of 23 over? For the most part. I, I call it a mini crisis. It was nothing like 08 or 09. There was too much leverage in the system. There wasn't too much leverage this time. There's plenty of capital. We had a trillion dollars in mortgage problems last time. There's no thing here. There's a problem in plain sight, which is some interest rate exposure, some of these uninsured deposits that you know kind of ran like a flock of birds, and it's over for now. I think that you've most of it's been handled, and I think the only but I'd put in there is rates go up from here, and they might. It can rear its ugly head again, and you know, I'm hoping that banks and other financial institutions are taking the time to think through what are their interest rate exposures if the whole yield curve goes you know, to 6% or even 7%, can they handle it? What about the health of the U.S. economy? I think it was last October you said that the U.S. would quite probably be in recession by mid-23. Even in your letter to shareholders, you talked about dark storm clouds ahead. Yeah. Is the U.S. actually now going to skirt a recession? No, no I, I, I'm going to be different. I, what's skirted is that a lot of, there was so much fiscal, this is my opinion, looking back, fiscal monetary stimulus, that's part of the reason we're still very strong. And consumers have money. They have a trillion dollars more in their checking accounts. It's been coming down. And we think sometime around the end of the year, and this is where we kind of missed, if you go back a year ago, that excess money will be spent. But wages are going up, not enough for inflation. Home prices up for 10 or 15 years. Stock prices up for 10 or 15 years. Even if we go into recession, consumers are in great shape. That was true a year ago. That's true today. Businesses are in pretty good shape. That was true a year ago. It's true today. The storm clouds partially hit. Like I was talking about 5% rates. They actually got to 5%. Inflation was too high. Markets were down 20%. The IPO markets closed. So you kind of had a little bit of that. But I still think there's some very serious things in front of us. They're still out there. They may never happen. But this war in Ukraine 
oil, gas, food, migration, some small nations who are, are struggling quite a bit, quantitative tightening, which we've never had, and inflation may go up. I think the odds of rates going higher from here are higher than what other people think. All these things may mitigate and go away and we'll all have a deep sigh of relief. I wouldn't count on that. You wouldn't count on that no. unless you think it's probable that there'll be a recession within the next six months? Yeah, I, I don't know. Look, I look at possibilities and probabilities and all that. I think it's possible. And it could be very mild. It could be a soft landing. It could be a hard landing. I'm much more worried about some of these other serious things getting worse. The war in Ukraine, spreading out, nuclear blackmail, food doesn't get delivered, starvation in Africa. I'm far more worried about that. And quantitative tightening. I, in the back of my mind, I just I can't get past the notion we've never had it before. We've never had quantitative easing like this before. We've never had quantitative tightening before. I think the effects on that in the market may be more serious than other people think. And do you think the Fed is going to have to tighten more than people may be expecting? I think there's a good chance that, yes. Let's talk about Bidenomics. You know, the president has been out touting Bidenomics, yet his approval ratings on the economy are pretty crummy. Yeah. Um, do you think Bidenomics has been a success? God, it's a tough question to answer. Look, I'm in favor for the first time in my life of some industrial policy for security reasons and for competitive reasons and stuff like that. There shouldn't be social policy around that. It shouldn't be political, it should be purely economic. One of the things I think the American public looks at is, is our government competent and effective? Is it becoming too much big brother? And I think those are different questions than the IRA Act. So and, how do you answer your also, first question? And also the fiscal spending, $5 trillion of excess fiscal spending over two years, some to counter COVID, but some is far more in excess of that is causing the inflation. So I don't know how you put that all together, but I think it's why people support some of the policies, but they look at the government. You know, even my Democratic friends, when I tell them about the government and effective policy and competence, and they all roll their eyes because they know that's not necessarily true. So let's separate out the stimulus. I think we can probably both agree that there was too much of that, and that's, that's you know, yeah. part of what's caused the inflation. But on the other aspects of Bidenomics, the industrial policy, the bigger role of the state, you say for the first time in your life you're in favor of industrial policy. Yeah. Why? I mean, the record on this is pretty bad when you look around the world. It is. And I think when you have it, you should be very, very cautious. I think the reason is national security, so just take chips. If you believe we have to make chips here or in a friendly, a non-adversarial place, they need help to be able to do that. That's a fact. You'll never make them profitable. That's going to be the same for rare earths. That's going to be the same for other things, which if we agreed that we're national security. I think there's some other issues that relate to competitiveness, where if you want to have a competitive environment, you know, and China is using state capitalism, state capital, you know, forced mergers, they're a huge home market to compete. How do you make it fair for our, our companies and your companies? You know, so, and it may take a little bit of industrial policy, but it should be done really carefully. I, I agree with you. I think when they write books about this 10 years from now, a lot is going to be about how it didn't work, ineffective, companies feeding at the trough, cylindras taking place again. And so I would caution people, yes, do it, but be really careful. So, so how would diamondomics be different from Bidenomics? Look, I think my view is, first of all, I'm a free enterprise person. I think markets do work. The most important part of free enterprise isn't capital, it's people. The movement of people, the brain power of people, your ability to start and think and grow and move and things like that. And so... I would have growth policies. We haven't done a particularly good job in this country. To give you a number, we grew in from the last 20 years to like 1.7% a year. It should have been 3%. You know, we should be criticizing ourselves. Why wasn't it 
I personally believe it's because we've done a terrible job in immigration, taxation, mortgages, affordable housing, healthcare. We have some of the best healthcare in the world in terms of keeping people healthy, obesity, diabetes, you know, teaching kids that in school. You know, I can go on and on, uh, mortgages. You know, if, have we done a good job? I think we go to 3%. 3% would mean the average American would have $15,000 more GDP per person this year. That's what we should have done. That would have paid for better safety nets. That would have paid for more military. It would have paid for more schooling, whatever you think you know, we need to do more of. And so, uh, but, but that list of things that you've laid out, it doesn't bear a huge amount of resemblance to the things that the administration is focusing on. I mean, Bidenomics, as you said, it's about industrial policy. It's about a bigger role for the state. Yeah, I'd be careful about that. You know, and we all agree that we need to do a better job in education. We should be making it cheaper, not more expensive. Kids should know if I graduate this certificate or this degree, I can get a job making $75,000 a year. We should do a better job at that. Jobs lead to dignity, better outcomes, better social outcomes, more mobility. I think in our society, we forgot, you know, we make fun sometimes to burger flip a job. That first job, the first rung in the ladder. It matters. That brings yeah. dignity. You know, I would do things like expand the earned income tax credit, which is a little form of industrial policy, to negative income tax. I think it would help society dramatically to get more hands in the lower paid, who would probably spend that money to take care of their families and their neighborhoods, and like I said, better social outcomes. And I would be doing things like that. So, Tom, Mike, you know, one of the things I found interesting was his view on interest rates. He thinks they might have to go higher. That's not really the consensus view. Markets seem to think there may be one more hike, but not really a meaningful move higher in interest rates. And there has been this growing school of thought that the Fed might be done and everything, you know, stocks rallying, house prices stabilising, seems to be a result of that. So if his thinking is correct, there's more pain to come on that front, maybe. Yeah, that was very telling. But it was also interesting to hear him say that he's actually far more worried about issues like the war in Ukraine than he is about a recession in the US. It's pretty clear that this is someone for whom a lot of attention really goes towards issues that are at best, I think, perpendicular to his day job, which is perhaps one of the reasons he's so often seen as someone with ambitions beyond his banking career. I found the difference very striking in talking to American CEOs. I spend more of my time talking to executives in Asia and a lot of places where the level of sort of openness to talk about government policy and potentially criticize the government is substantially lower. And I feel like these are some sort of comments that you wouldn't necessarily get from a European CEO either, because there's an element of, you know, who cares what a bank CEO thinks about these various issues of policy. Um, so I find that sort of openness really fascinating and the role of an American business leader where you're not just free to engage on policy, but sort of almost expected to as a sort of figure of trust. Yeah, I find it really fascinating. And I, I suppose as an economist journalist, I'm obviously going to like appeal to free markets and free movement and whatnot, even if I'm not 100% sure there's a big American political coalition for those policies at the moment. If you want to watch Sani's full interview with Jamie Dimon, you can find that on our website, where you can also find Alice's guest Schumpeter column about what he does next. And you can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That's if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we will hear more from Jamie Dimon about his views on China and the potential for a presidential run.
Before the break, we heard the first half of The Economist editor-in-chief Zanny Minton Beddoe's interview with Jamie Dimon, the long-serving boss of JP Morgan. So far, he's talked about the mini-banking crisis, which took down the likes of Silicon Valley Bank, and his newfound support for President Biden's industrial policy, which promises hundreds of billions of dollars to US manufacturers. That's where we pick up on the interview. Let's talk a bit about the justification that even you think there is for industrial policy, which is national security concerns, particularly China. You were in China recently, and reportedly you said that Sino-US relationship was the most complex since the Second World War, the geopolitics around that. Henry Kissinger, I had a long conversation with just a few weeks ago for his 100th birthday, and he said to us that he thought that we were on the path to great power confrontation. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I read that, and it's scary. I, I don't know. I do know that talking to people, I mean, we should be talking to the Chinese and they should be talking to us. This is going to take uh, real tough negotiations to get it right so that you have, and I kind of agree with the concept of de-risking, not decoupling, and what works and what doesn't work. But, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer if you opened up our borders, billions of people would move here. Absolutely. You know, if you opened up our markets, trillions of dollars would move here. It's not true they'd move to other parts of the world. So we should be looking at our own flaws and not always blaming other people. The Chinese are not 10 feet tall. They import 10 million barrels of oil a day. They don't have enough food. We have all the food, war, and energy we want. Our GDP per person is $80,000. Theirs is 15. Our military is the best in the world. And maybe they're caught up in a couple of areas, but the notion that somehow America has to be that afraid of China, we don't. On the other hand, looking back 15 years, we all made a mistake. We should have been thinking this national security, unfair competition, and not just hoping it all ends up okay. They've been doing that by 10 or 15 years. If you look at their, how they think about supply chains, industries they want to dominate, they've been quite blunt about it, and, which I understand. They're trying to do a good job for their own country. If you're in Beijing, and I was in Beijing a, a couple of months ago, you know, the view in Beijing is that the U.S. wants to keep China down. Yeah. And the view in Washington is that China is a, you know aggressive authoritarian regime that wants to create a a world order that's kind of antithetical to democracies. I think there's an element of truth to both of those. Yeah. And that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I was surprised how much I heard they were trying to keep them down. We, that should not be our goal. Our goal should be to lift up America, do a great job, keep our Western alliances together, both for the military, i.e. Ukraine, uh, and to counter some of the bad guys out there. But economically, we need an economic comprehensive strategy too. That's trade, investment, you know, even like the IRA Act, which, again, I support most of it, it wasn't done really thoughtfully with our allies who looked at that and said, that is the most anti-European thing we've ever done. And, you know, sometimes they complain too much, but they're also partially right. And so to me, we got to keep that all together. And, you know, we can do a lot of things unilateral, just like they've done a lot of things unilaterally. You know, how you deal with trade and WTO investments, we can be tough and mature. And we don't have to hold them down. We have to just protect ourselves. And there's a big difference between the but, two. But how can you learn to trust each other if, if one side thinks the other is trying to keep them down? And frankly, there is evidence for that, right? I mean, what are these export controls on advanced semiconductors? They're designed to ensure that China stays far behind the U.S. in the cutting-edge technologies of the 21st century. I, I think if it related to national security, I supersonic missiles, I understand why we do it. If it relates to holding back the Chinese people, I understand why we shouldn't do it. That's what I'm saying. You know, no country would give away their best military equipment to, to another country that they might go to war with. So, so that would be okay. And I don't think we've ever done this before. So I think we're all struggling to figure out what we actually mean by that. I think the government is, 
businesses are, you know, but going and talking to each other is the first way to say what really matters, what's important, what protects the United States. And that, that turns to American leadership. And since World War II, the U.S. has been the global hegemon leader of the free world. You wrote in your article for the Wall Street Journal that the West needs American leadership. But when you look at the U.S. now, an unbelievably polarized country, the economy is doing well, but an incredibly politically polarized country. It looks like we're you know, gearing up for another Trump-Biden rematch. Is U.S. politics capable of that kind of leadership? I think so. And if you look at history, by the way, we've had this before. This isn't the only time. And you know, Warren Buffett here to tell you the resiliency of America, including his political system, as it morphs and changes over time. And one of the beautiful things about democracy is we can argue, we can talk, we share information. People change their minds. If they don't like their leadership, they change their leadership. All things like that. But I think it's very important to point out, it does need American leadership. I don't mean that as an arrogant American. I mean that there is no one else can provide it, economically, militarily, et cetera. It should be thoughtful, mature, and ba- it's got to be done with allies. You know, we can't be our way or the highway when it comes to every little thing. The IRA Act was an example of that, you know, to the Europeans. You know, there they go again. They just do what they want, that they feel like, without talking to us. We don't have to win our way in every, every decent point. And it's got to be across everything. It's got to be economic, diplomacy, development, finance. So I would love to see us do more of those things. But is there really an appetite for that? I mean, if you look back at the sort of post-war period, there was a bipartisan support for American engagement, for American global leadership. Now, if you look certainly at the Republican Party, there's a growing isolationist wing in that party. And it's not at all clear what a future president Donald Trump might do in terms of American leadership. If you're outside America, if you're, you know, I live in London, we're worried about this. I would worry about another Trump presidency too, by the way. But I think there's always been an isolation element. It took a lot to get us to World War I. It took a, you know, a lot to get us to World War II. There's always been a little bit of that. But I think if you go to Washington, D.C., when it comes to Ukraine, it's been pretty tight, Republicans and Democrats. So when it was needed, it was there. And I think the other thing we have to explain to the American public is this is, we're doing it for America. So of course you have America first, meaning, you know, can you imagine someone running for president saying America second? But we're doing this for America. If America gets isolated, if autocratic nations kind of cherry pick the world in security and food and economics and development finance, you know, the Chinese are all over Latin America, which they are in Africa, and we're not there. That's a huge mistake for America. So the, the America should be doing this for itself. We have to explain to the American public why it's important. But what they've sought also is that we spent 20 years at war and trillions of dollars and we've made mistakes and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be, have American leadership that we need to keep the world safe and secure for free enterprise and democracy. That, it, to me, should be a sine qua non of American policy. So when I listen to you, I hear you talking like this. I think that for a man who runs a very big, successful bank, you have a lot of ideas about public policy. Why don't you run for office? I, you know, I'm 67 years old. I think if you're going <laughs> to- That's young by the standards <laughs> no, 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 of presidential yeah. candidates. Yeah. I think, I, I do, I don't, I've never really believed I'm suited for it. I also think if you're going to do that, you should practice. You know, you don't just say, oh, I'm going to run for office. You've got to learn how to run for office. I think running, there may be common skills between a CEO in terms of administration, management, leadership, but also non-common ones. You know, you're dealing with a whole bunch of different issues and a bunch of different venues and stuff like that. So, you know, I think it's perfectly reasonable people think about it. I think it's very hard to do. And in fact, if you just look at history, it's almost impossible. You know, well, except for pre- Donald Trump. Pre- but he is the exception, and that may be the exception for 100 years. 
But, you know, every other American president spent a lot of time in politics or was a respected general, basically. He is the exception. Remember, that was the third time he ran, kind of. That's true. What about serving in an administration? Maybe one day that'll be in the cards, but that's not in the cards right away. But I love my country. And, you know, I, to me, my family comes first, but my country's right next. You know, J.P. Morgan's down here. J.P. is my best contribution that I can do to, you know, like we have 300,000 employees. We take care of them well. We give them opportunity. We earn 100 countries. We bank countries. that We bank the World Bank, the IMF. We bank Ukraine. We bank Poland. We bank cities, schools, states, hospitals. I'm very proud of what we do. We help our employees. We help five million small businesses. It's unbelievable. That's my contribution. But business leaders have become much more political of late. And in fact, kind of consciously so, right? And it was, what, 2019 when you were chairman of the Business Roundtable and you explicitly changed your focus from shareholder value to stakeholders. That was controversial. With hindsight, was it a mistake? Not really. You know, I, I mean, I, this is my view. This whole thing about shareholder value, you know, and fiduciary responsibility was buttonholing us into a thing that the American public heard as rapacious profit-taking at the expense of employees or customers, which of course is ridiculous. If you ask any CEO, any one of them, about what they're trying to do, they would tell you, I gotta have the best products and services, I gotta keep my customers happy, I need them coming back to me to do that, I need great employees, I need talent, I need R&D, I need these things. And even a small business participates in the community. The little bakery corner shop, you know, takes the food at the end of the day and brings it to a homeless shelter helps a local religious institution, a local literally, that's called humanity. So this was just humanizing business, that we take care of our customers, our employees, our communities, et cetera. It wasn't, it doesn't mean the show doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you don't have fiduciary responsibility. Even the word fiduciary, the American public here is standing behind your wealthy lawyers. We don't have to stand behind anybody. We're proud of what we do. We worry about those things. That's how we do a great job for shareholders. So what do you make of this backlash against, quote, woke capitalism? You know, I always ask, but what's, what is woke? I don't know what that means. You know, like, and most people, they have a hard time answering that question. And I do think it's gotten a little bit out of hand on both sides sometimes. You know, so on both sides like of said, the political eye. Like I said, I spoke in my chairman's letter about, you know, what we're doing for diversity and philanthropy and corporate social responsibility. And then you said, in case you think I've gone soft, I'm the, still I'm a, a red-blooded, red-blooded, full-throated, free enterprise, patriotic American. And so, so, so where does what yeah. where does a red-blooded, full-throated, patriotic American find a political home? I think you said a decade ago that you were barely a Democrat, and I think in 2019 you said your brain was probably more Republican, but your heart was Democrat. Which party are you closer to? I don't now? know. I'm I'm still in the same place. I think we should be taking care of our citizens. We haven't done a particularly good job for the maybe the bottom 20 percent or something like that. And I want to do a better job. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think a lot of policies are highly misguided. Some of these big brother policies, they create the opposite of what you would think. And I guess I, I don't... But in the, in the end, like, you so, have to put a tick in a box. I'm, so, not, I'm, and not, I'm not expecting you to tell me where you put your yeah. tick in a box, but which, I'll put it this way, which party has changed more and which party do you worry about its direction? I, no, but then you're making parties binary, they're not. So like, look, I'm highly critical of the parties too sometimes. When I go down to Washington, you know, I call them the wing nuts. Yes, they're there, but there are a lot of very smart people in both parties who I know and respect that really want to get things right. And you know, I try to focus on that. Focus on them. Let's just, in our last section, talk a little bit about your own leadership. One of the hallmarks of a great leader is also to know when to go. And you're now, you now have, I believe, an incentive package that suggests that you ought to stay until 2026. Is there a risk that you stay too long? Yeah, there's always a risk. 
So it's totally, my board meets without me every single time, which I think bothers the, I know you guys in England are obsessed with compensation and separating chair and CEO. <laughs> we're not, we're very bad at compensation compared to the exactly. Americans. Exactly. But the important thing isn't that, because my lead director has all the same authority as the chairman. The important thing is, does the board meet without the CEO? That one thing. And, you know, Dodd-Frank mandated it once a year. We do it every meeting. So they can talk about, what did Jamie say? Who do you want to meet? They meet all the senior people. They are told everything. They visit people. They call them up. They want to know. The succession is their job. They know, and I agree with, that when it's time for me to go, I go. But isn't it also and, your responsibility? Yes. But at the end of the day, it's their job. So I can recommend, I can think this, but we talk about everything. Every meeting, we talk about succession, both the hit by the truck and then, you know, the three or four or five years out and then even beyond that so that you're always thinking about it. But, you know, if, if I thought I was going to lose the right person today, I'd rather leave, give that person a 15-year run than stay and lose them. And they know I think that. I'd be fine if I don't have this job. You know, I love it. But what will you do you next? Know, uh, I don't know. I'm going to write, teach, invest, have work with some partners, maybe public policy better. So I'll be fine. Whatever it is, I'm sure you'll have a big impact. Jamie Dimon, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So, Tom, Mike, one of the clearest things for me from this interview is, you know, that question Zanny put to him was right. He does have an awful lot of policy ideas. And in many ways, a lot of the policies that he is in favour of are similar to the positions The Economist might take on a lot of things. So... He's in favour of free enterprise, free trade, capitalism. He thinks there's an element of sensible national security prioritising in the push towards industrial policy, but he worries about it going too far and becoming handouts for companies. A lot of the policies he mentioned on social mobility are also exactly the kinds of things that we would be in favour of. You know, cheaper education, earned income tax credits, all of that stuff. And so all of that both begs the question of, well, why doesn't he run? And sort of offers up an answer, which is that I don't think the positions that The Economist takes on a lot of things, um, nor the positions that Jamie Dimon takes, are particularly popular, which is kind of a tragedy in many ways, because, you know, for all the reasons we outlined right at the beginning of the show, he does seem like somebody who might not be uh, too bad at the job. But he is also a very pragmatic person. He's sort of clear-eyed about his chances at winning the nomination to run for president for either party. And so he probably is not actually going to run, which is what he keeps saying whenever anyone asks him about it in media interviews. He did seem to sort of indicate that he uh, wouldn't necessarily turn down a cabinet position, so whether that's sort of Treasury Secretary or something like that. But again, it's kind of hard to see a Democrat picking him for that role. And so I guess where I come out on this is thinking that while I would probably be in favour of, of diamondomics or a lot of the policy prescriptions that he has outlined here, I don't think he's ever really going to get a chance to put them into practice, which I think is kind of a shame. And at the same time, he's such an energetic person. He still seems to have a sort of a lot of ambition and enthusiasm for work. It's hard to get him to sit still. You know, when we were teeing him up for the interview, he was so keen to get going that he didn't want to wait to be sat down before he started having a chat with Zanny about some of his public policy ideas. It really is hard to imagine him, you know, twiddling his thumbs, doing nothing in his beach house. So I guess where I end up is thinking that he'll probably end up running JP Morgan for an awfully long time to come. 
Yeah, there's this interesting literature that looks at the link between CEO tenure and performance and finds that it typically follows a kind of inverted U-shaped pattern where performance improves over roughly the first decade in the job as the CEO works out what on earth they're doing. And then it starts to decline as those learning effects fade and they also start to become more resistant to change. And that seems to start happening around the decade mark. Uh, But there are, of course, lots of exceptions to that. And Jamie Dimon clearly seems to be continuing to drive a lot of value for shareholders. But obviously, he can't stay in the job forever. Eventually, it will become a problem in terms of blocking the next generation of leadership. And so the question is, what does he do next? He mentioned writing, teaching, investing. And I think that's great as he clearly still has a lot of energy left, as you say, Alice. And I also think it would set a very positive example. So the average tenure of CEOs in the S&P 500 has actually been steadily rising over the past decade. And it's been driven by this cohort of very long tenured bosses who've been in the job for, for kind of well over that one decade mark. And I think much of that is to do with the fact that people, particularly wealthy people, are, are healthier for a lot longer now and so often can work into their 70s and 80s. And one option is that they can stay in the CEO job, but I think it's also important for them to think about other ways they might be able to contribute to society while clearing the way for the next generation of leaders. Of course, he's about 13 years younger than President Biden, right? So he could always always (laughs) still have a crack at that. He's got a while before he'd be the oldest. Um, Yeah, I found the comments on China very, very interesting. Jamie Dimon, obviously a really big figure in US finance. And I think to some extent, what you can see in there is a sort of distilled version of how the US business and financial community has started to stagger finally somewhat more towards the political, the DC line on China. Stuff like the cautious support for parts of the Inflation Reduction Act is a big deal. And I think if you talked about something like the Inflation Reduction Act in, say, 2017, 2016, it would have been on the very, very defense-oriented China hawk end of the scale. And people like Jamie Dimon and and the US finance industry really wouldn't have liked all of that very much at all. You've seen the business community be almost a sort of last domino to fall into line into what is an increasingly consensual view on China and the competition with China in the US. And I think you can see that to some extent in the headlines from JP Morgan's business in China. It wasn't all that many years ago that Jamie Dimon was talking about having a sort of 100-year legacy in China and this huge expansion project. They're still going to try and expand in China, but I think they've conceded at this point that it's going somewhat slower than they would have liked. There's a lot more limitation to that sort of cross-Pacific business than they used to be. So yeah, I, I find that cautious, slightly more skeptical line of thinking uh, really, really interesting. Obviously, this being within the context of someone saying we shouldn't be too afraid of China and we should keep open sort of negotiation and discussion going on. But it seems relative to what you might have heard from a US bank CEO six or seven years ago to be very, very different to me. Yeah, and he's been leading JP Morgan Chase for such a long time that you can actually plot many of the ways in which the opinions of elite business people like himself have changed over time in the ways in which he himself talks about some of these issues. So things like the China problem, as you've highlighted, or things like stakeholder capitalism, even favorability for Wall Street CEOs in general. Over the years, his views, like much of corporate America, have shifted on sort of many of those topics. Although there are definitely sort of core principles uh, that he's always subscribed to, like his love of his country and his defense of capitalism. 
But speaking of uh, shifting opinions, why don't we shift topic slightly and move to our stats of the week? Yep, let's do it. I'm happy to kick us off. My stat of the week is 42, and that is the number of countries that have now been declared malaria-free by the World Health Organization after Belize was added to the list just last week. So malaria deaths have been falling actually for a couple of decades now, but they're still around kind of 500 to 600,000 a year, which is clearly a, a huge number. Now that hopefully will decline even further now that there is a vaccine that's been developed by Oxford University and is in the process of being rolled out in a number of different countries around the world. And I, I came across all of this recently because I'm about to travel to Tanzania for a couple of weeks, and that's a country that continues to be pretty heavily impacted by malaria. So unfortunately, I don't think the Wi-Fi connection is very good from our safari camp. So um, you guys will have to uh, cope without me for a couple of weeks. Sorry. Well, enjoy the uh, anti-malarial dreams. I don't know whether any of our listeners have ever experienced this, but in my experience, at least, anti-malarial medication gives you the most fantastic lucid dreams. So I hope you enjoy it, Tom. In my experience, it makes you violently sick. But uh... <laughs> Great. Thanks, guys. <laughs> One or the other, or both. <laughs> this is my honeymoon, by the way. So. <laughs> All right. Okay. In that case, Tom, maybe we'll let you off money talks for a couple of weeks. Try not to catch malaria. Um, so my stat of the week is minus 7.2%, which is the year-on-year -year change in Chinese pork prices. Anyone who's ever read or written much about Chinese inflation will know that pork prices are a very important part of the food basket. This is part of the overall picture that the Chinese economy is starting to look a little bit deflationary. We've seen a fall in producer prices year on year, and usually producer prices start to feed into consumer prices fairly shortly afterwards. So definitely one to watch. It's not all about pork, but it is probably the more fun element of the inflation basket. Uh, so uh, in China, it's a uh, it's a little easier to bring home the bacon now, eh? <laughs> uh, uh. As the Just... noise Tom will make when he has to take his anti-malarial medications. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, and I'll I'll get on with my uh, my stat as well now. So my stat of the week is eighteen days, which is the record for the consecutive number of days that temperatures in Phoenix, Arizona, have been above one hundred and ten degrees Fahrenheit. So that's about forty-two degrees Celsius, and it looks like they may be on track to break that record. So I think they're currently on about day twelve of consecutive one hundred and ten degree heat, and the forecast for the next week isn't looking great. So everyone in Phoenix, Arizona, is really sort of hunkered down at home with the AC blasting to uh, shelter themselves from these uh, extreme temperatures. I mean, Phoenix is a city literally in the middle of the desert. So I feel like for a warming planet, it's probably not the ideal place to be. But I suppose they all have air conditioning. So maybe it's not that bad. That's it. Tom's last message before he goes away. If you live in Arizona, it's your fault. Get over it. <laughs> Well, on that cheerful note, we will bid Tom farewell on his honeymoon. But before we go, we do have a bit of an update on Sumeya, who left on maternity leave to have a baby. The wonderful news is that little baby Casper was born in January. But while she's been off, she's also managed to find a new job. So double congratulations to her. We wish her all the best. The silver lining of this, of course, is that we get to keep Tom on. It's been terrific having him on the show, and I'm thrilled that we get to keep him around. Look, there are big shoes to fill, but I'm delighted to be sticking around as part of the team. Yep. 
probation is definitely now over as long as you make it back from the safari. And with that, all that's left to do is to say thank you to Jamie Dimon. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualisation, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.